Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning. Those of you who are homeschooling might have been encouraged by this tweet that went viral this week. It was from a man called Andrew Jeffrey. He uh, used to work as an Ofsted inspector. And so he made this sort of um, spoof Ofsted report for the homeschool. Uh, he's currently running at home with his two children, the, uh, the Jeffrey homeschool. As you can see, uh, there are two people on the roll. And uh, the inspection suggests that this school requires improvement and that the leadership and management is shocking. I particularly liked these comments uh, in the summary of key findings. I like this one. Pupils enjoy learning. They just don't enjoy lessons, except for making a game where they throw a ball into various cardboard boxes. I also like this. And the team didn't feel that get everyone showered and dressed by lunchtime was sufficiently aspirational enough. I also enjoyed this comment that the key stage two pupil was recently caught playing Fortnite and claimed it was a geography project. And this comment that the Key Stage 4 pupil did not arrive at school until 1pm, but when the inspectors questioned him, he could give no clear reason why he was not at school. And I particularly enjoyed Ofsted's response to this uh, after the tweet had gone viral. I thought it was in really good humour. They said, Dear Head Teacher, monitoring visit showed excellent leadership skills in difficult circumstances. Our admiration and thanks to all parents and children keeping it together. And I guess if you're homeschooling, we just want you to know that we're thinking about you. It isn't easy. We're sure that you're doing an amazing job. And uh, no, uh, whether your children are learning all the stuff they're supposed to learn academically, I'm sure they're having an amazing time just getting extra input from you and building relationship and investing in them, which is so key. We are continuing our series on the art of neighbouring. And as part of this series, we've suggested that each of us makes a use of this simple block map tool, which helps us to identify the eight or so houses that are nearest to our house. Obviously, it doesn't have to look exactly like what's on the map, um, but to use the tool to help us just kind of work out what we know about our neighbours. Who might we put in the category of stranger? Who might we put in the category of acquaintance? And who might we have a real relationship with? And then there's obviously a journey implied there. And it's going to take time. But the idea is just to be proactive about moving forward in this journey. Um, and it gives us something to pray about and something to focus on as we all try and better fulfill that second commandment to love our neighbours. You know, and I wonder how you're doing with your block map. I wonder what you've learned about your neighbours over the last week or so. We're still hearing some great stories about people's interactions with their neighbours. You know, down our street, we actually held a social distancing sort of gathering um, out in the street. Literally across the street, we had a whole bunch of our neighbours um, just spread out uh, and just chatting on Saturday afternoon. Everyone brought their own drinks out and uh, somebody brought some cake. And it was just uh, lovely. We were all sort of well distanced from each other, but close enough to have a chat and people really appreciated that in fact some people were there for about three hours on Saturday afternoon and during the afternoon I did something that I've been meaning to do for a long time which was to go and get to know uh, a couple who moved in over the street from us I'm embarrassed to say about three years ago and we've never just our paths have never crossed and we've never had the chance to chat properly I've seen them and I've nodded and I've waved and smiled in the street um, but I went over and I said, look, I'm really sorry. I've been a terrible neighbour. I should have come and gotten to know you and welcomed you into the street a long time ago, but I just didn't. And there's no excuse and I'm sorry. And they were very kind and they were very gracious. And we had a really nice chat and I got to know a bit about them and their children and what they do. And as Joe mentioned last week, we know that lockdown is a different experience for different ones among us. Some of us are just loving the space that we're getting in our lives and other of us Others of us are desperate for space at this time. And so, you know, this isn't a competition. We just want to encourage each of us to do what we have the capacity for. I just encourage you to simply ask God, what is the next step for you? 
Um, what does that look like? It could be something as simple as praying. It could be something as simple as one little text message. Hopefully we'll be out of our houses a bit before uh, summer ends. And wouldn't it be brilliant if we could spend even more time getting to know our neighbours by just hosting a gathering? Um, you know, I love that Christians have been part of reaching out to the vulnerable during this season. And wouldn't it be amazing if we, the Christians, also got reputation for throwing the best neighbourhood parties once the lockdown relaxes? You know, we look at Jesus in the New Testament and we see that he was at all the best parties. In fact, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, so he must have been right in the thick of it. You know, Jesus often found himself in groups with people who the rest of society, certainly religious society, disapproved of and were very uncomfortable around. And we're going to look at one such story uh, in our reading this morning, which is from Luke chapter 7 and verses 36 to 50. Let's read it together. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you not see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's have a look at what's actually going on in this story. There are three key characters. And if I'm honest, they're all in some ways a little bit outrageous. This unnamed woman breezes into this meal with an outrageous display of love and adoration and worship of Jesus. Simon, the Pharisee who's hosting the meal, displays outrageous rudeness, not welcoming Jesus in the way that a host should. And then there's Jesus, who demonstrates what to some might seem like outrageous grace and forgiveness. Let's take some time to look at each of these characters in a bit more detail. And let's start with Simon, this Pharisee. You know, there were different types of Pharisees. And while some of them were set dead against Jesus, there were some who were actually more willing to give him a fair hearing and hear what he had to say. Simon would have heard the rumours that Jesus was some kind of prophet. This chapter has already described Jesus healing a centurion servant and raising a widow's son from the dead. And so the stories would have gone around and Simon, this religious teacher, probably wanted to find out more and ask questions for himself and to work out for himself who Jesus was. Which is probably why he invited him to his house. And so in verse 39, he seems to have come to a conclusion that Jesus can't be a prophet. Certainly as he knows it anyway. Otherwise, he would have known just what sort of a woman this woman was. 
And he certainly wouldn't have let her touch him like that. So that's Simon. Now, what about this woman? She's not an invited guest at this dinner table. But in those days, it was normal for the door to remain open and for beggars and other people from the city, maybe ex maybe family members, others to wander in and to see what was going on. It's fairly clear that she's a prostitute and she certainly seems to have a well-known reputation. And yet she comes to Jesus with this expensive perfume and she is ready to anoint his feet in an act of worship. And as if that wasn't awkward and embarrassing enough for those around watching, even before she manages to anoint his feet, she's so overcome by emotion just by being with him that she ends up crying and her tears make his feet wet. And then in order to dry them, she gets down and she lets down her hair to wipe the feet dry. And that is something that no decent woman would ever do in public was to let down their hair. That's kind of like a total no-no. And having broken these taboos, she continues to wipe his feet and kiss them and anoint them. As a result of her incredible act of worship, at the end of the conversation, Jesus says, go, your sins have been forgiven. And what about Jesus? You see here, as he does in many places, Jesus turns what would be most people's normal expectations right on their head. He throws every social convention right out the window. He sets a new standard of forgiveness and love, which goes way beyond what anyone might have expected. And the crux of it is in that verse when he says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And it's outrageous because it goes against all the Pharisees teaching, which is all about working hard to uphold the law to get close to God. This lady's done none of that. In their eyes, her lifestyle puts her so far away from God that to even just get close to him would be virtually impossible. And yet Jesus not only praises her actions and forgives her sins, but he even then goes and goes further and challenges the Pharisee. Jesus says, you didn't wash my feet or greet me with a kiss or anoint my head. All those things would have been expected of a host in those days. But she did. She did it with her tears and she kissed my feet and she anointed my feet with perfume. And there's no hint of anything sexual or inappropriate here between the woman and Jesus. But she must have heard the rumours about him about town and decided to come and find out for herself. Well, I mean, what would she have to lose? It's not like she had any kind of reputation to keep up anyway. And then when she actually comes face to face with Jesus, when she actually gets there, she's overcome with emotion. And I think this is a beautiful picture of a broken woman powerfully encountering the love of God in a way that would transform her life. And yet this Pharisee completely missed what was really going on. He fails to see God at work. And I wonder why that is. You see, you know, Jesus actually says, Simon, do you see this woman? And I don't think he means, do you see her with your eyes? He says, do you actually see her? Can you actually look at what's really going on here? And I don't think this Pharisee really can, because this man is looking through a filter of fear. You see, he has made judgments about this woman before she even came into his house. I mean, she's a sinner and he certainly doesn't want to be contaminated by her sin. He doesn't want to be near her. He doesn't want to touch her. In his mind, that would make him unclean. It would make him less holy. It would make him separate from his God. And there's certainly very little compassion for her. And in his mind, very little possibility of forgiveness or hope for change. And yet, because of this filter of fear that he's seeing through, he completely misses a sacred and holy moment happening right in his house, right in front of him. God is doing something here in this woman's life and the Pharisee fails to see it. And that's a shame because he could have been part of the blessing. He could have been part of celebrating her freedom. 
but instead he was blinded by his own fear. Tom Wright says about this Pharisee, this Pharisee has never come to terms with the depths of his own heart and so doesn't appreciate God's generous love when it sits in person at his own table. The way that Luke describes it, true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness and the sign and proof of this faith is love. And I do wonder if there are times when sacred, holy moments are happening around us. But we're just really not seeing what's going on because of our own fear. In fact, I noticed this play on words. It doesn't actually take a lot for something that's sacred to become scared. Let's talk a little bit about fear. You see, fear isn't wrong. But how we deal with fear is important. Fear is, in fact, a very necessary emotion for basic survival. And it's a very normal response to situations where we can feel unsafe. You know, when all of life is disrupted in the way it is for most of us right now, many of us will be experiencing a greater level of fear, sadness, anger, loss. And when we experience an emotion like that, there's always a message or a motivation that's contained within it, which, if we can find the meaning for ourselves will ultimately provide a better way to understand ourselves. But that isn't always easy to do, especially in the moment. Now, I'm really no expert in this field, but I am going to use a psychological diagram I found to try and explain what I mean. So in this box, we have a healthy, normal nervous system. Most of the time, things are just ticking along and our emotions go up and down a bit, but they generally stay within a normal range. And that keeps us on a reasonably even keel. But then look at this diagram and look what happens when a traumatic situation is introduced. You see, traumatic situations can push us into a state of what is called hyper arousal, which looks like some of the behaviours described in the box at the top. Panic, restlessness, can't sleep, feeling a bit hyperactive, getting cross or getting upset easily. You know, stressful traumatic events will cause this and they'll cause us to go outside of that normal sort of window. And if we're not careful to regulate that or get some help, we can find ourselves stuck in that heightened state for quite a long time, you know, stuck on on, as it describes. That can be a dangerous and a really unhealthy place to be. It can have a really detrimental effect on us and on those around us. And of course, it isn't possible to stay on on forever. But if we stay on there for too long, eventually we're going to burn out. And we might find that that leads to something opposite where we're stuck on off, depressed, exhausted, disorientated, disconnected or numb. And we can't really feel anything. That's called hypo-arousal. And both are normal responses triggered by traumatic events. And sometimes if things are really difficult, we find that we flip-flop between the two. Now, as I've said, I'm absolutely no expert in this area. But one thing I do know is that if we can hold an emotion within us, but we can get ourselves back within that normal range, in this model it's called the window of tolerance, then we are well placed to work out how to better understand and get meaning from the emotions that we're feeling. In this case, the heightened sense of fear and anxiety. And so there are different ways to do that. One way of finding meaning in emotions that we're feeling is through a closer connection to others. Just by talking it over with somebody in a meaningful way helps us to really process. Now, that might be possible, but it might not be possible in this season because we can't be together. Another way of finding meaning in the emotions that we're experiencing is by uh, looking at a change of circumstances around us. But again, there's not much possibility of that going on right now. But another way of finding meaning in the emotions that we're experiencing is by getting a deeper understanding of God, by tapping into his perspective on what's going on. 
And I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit is right here with us to help us to do that. And despite all the trauma around us, God is there for us. The Bible tells us he's a strong and dependable father who is ready to come close and to give us the reassurance and the peace that we need. And if we can tap into that, then that's going to lead to us gaining a deeper insight into ourselves, into growing our character, which is another way of getting meaning from emotion. So if we find ourselves experiencing a heightened level of fear and anxiety in this season, well, there are a few different ways we can deal with that. But one of the best ways is to press back into God and delve into our understanding of who he is, his character, his nature and how he's working in this season and where he is for us right now. And we can do that by digging deeper into our relationship with him, just like Mary in the story of Mary and Martha that Joe talked about last week, literally spending time at Jesus' feet. And in the e-press this week, um, I mentioned a couple of prayers and tools uh, that were specifically to help us come before Jesus. Just, just little things that could help us just be with him if we're not quite sure how to go about that in this season. And I'll mention them again at the end. And maybe you have someone you can talk through these fears and anxieties with by way of processing them. I hope you do. But if you don't, I would encourage you to find someone. You know, maybe there's someone in your life group. Maybe there's an opportunity in your life group to talk about and share how you're doing. But even if not, why not just kind of call one of the members afterwards or later? Why not arrange to have a coffee, virtual coffee, or just even a phone chat or even a text conversation with somebody? Pick out somebody from your life group and say, hey, have you got half an hour? Let's talk about how it is. And, you know, as well as that, our Streams of Hope team are also available. If anybody would appreciate a conversation, if you just kind of feel like, oh, I just love someone to chat to and just someone to maybe help me pray through this time because I'm really struggling. Then all you need to do is send an email to the office and we will fix that up for you. I want to encourage us because even in this stressful time, God is at work. He's at work in our own lives and he's at work in the lives of others. And giving ourselves the time and the space to acknowledge our fears or sadness or rage or whatever and to hold them for a while. And to bring our emotions into that window of tolerance and then to find meaning in what we're feeling is one of the bravest and most mature choices that we can make in this season. And it will give us a greater understanding of who God is and a deeper understanding of who we are. And it'll have a really positive effect on our lives for now, for the future and for all those close to us and around us. And you see, I don't want fear to stop me from seeing or participating in what God is doing in my own life. And in the lives of those around me, particularly in this season, I don't want to be like that Pharisee in the story who completely missed a holy moment, who failed to participate in or even celebrate this woman's complete transformation of freedom brought about in an instant by Jesus because of his own fear and sort of blinkeredness about the way he looked at things. Now, sometimes the things that God is doing around us happen in an instant. Sometimes they happen in a dramatic moment. But often they happen incrementally in a series of moments or a series of intentional conversations. You've heard me say that before. And I think it's highly possible that God is at work in the lives of my friends and my neighbours and the people who are living around me. And yet it's also highly possible that I could be missing that. Either because I'm too busy, like Joe spoke about last week, running around, or because in my heart of hearts, I'm actually operating from a place of fear. Maybe not fear that's so obvious that I'm in this sort of hyper state. Maybe it's just a subconscious fear. But I do wonder if there's a bunch of fear around this whole idea of just getting to know my neighbours better. 
So just before I close this morning, I just want to highlight three things that we might be afraid of. And of course, it might just be me. And perhaps you guys have got this all sorted, but I'm going to share this anyway, just in case it resonates with you as well. I think one thing that I might be afraid of when it comes to talking uh, and getting to know my neighbours is my fear of other people. You know, maybe I'm slightly afraid of what I will find out about people if I really take the time to get to know them. It feels uncomfortable. Maybe I just won't like them. And maybe I'm worried that getting to know people who are different from me will end up having a negative effect on my own life, somehow drawing me away from God. You know, there are whole church movements that operate on that basis. They don't want to mix with anyone who isn't part of the church for fear of corruption or contamination. And so they sort of sort of hide themselves off in a corner of society and don't really engage. And, and yet that's not how I see Jesus living his life. Maybe I'm afraid of what people might say if and when they find out a bit more about me. Maybe if I say I'm a Christian, they'll think I'm either a hypocrite or just plain weird. Maybe I'm scared that they'll hear if I sing too loud during lockdown worship. If I leave the windows open and sing my God songs at the top of my voice, they'll realise that I'm actually a passionate worshipper of Jesus. And I might feel a little concerned about that, about being so demonstrative. Maybe I'm afraid of the reputation I get if I go and offer to pray for them. Maybe I'm afraid of looking foolish. And I don't know if these are just my fears. Perhaps they're yours too. Might even be subconscious. Maybe that's the reason that I don't spend more time with my neighbours because deep down I'm afraid of what they might think of me if we actually cross a barrier and open up and share a bit of our lives. And the third thing that I think that I'm perhaps sometimes afraid of when it comes to talking to my neighbours is the cost of sharing my life. Maybe we're afraid of what it might cost us to get involved with people because of the way that we might have to share our space, be it our physical space or our emotional space. What do I mean by that? Well, physical space, our homes, you know, they say an Englishman's home is his castle. And once I'm inside, I'm safe. And there is a feeling of safety being inside your own home. And of course, in lockdown, that's how it's meant to be. But all the other times, I wonder how open we are to welcoming people in, to opening the door, sharing our food and drinks, you know, showing the kind of generous, open hospitality that that man never showed to Jesus. And what about our emotional space? What about our diary? I wonder if you feel like our diary's already full. And before we came into lockdown, I know many of us will, will say we were busy. And I wonder if we feel like, actually, I just don't have the capacity for any more relationships. I don't have any extra space in my life to get to know anybody else. And I'm afraid that spending time with my neighbours and investing in those relationships will actually affect the friendships I've already got. Perhaps subconsciously we think, well, you know, it's OK spending time helping people elsewhere. Maybe I'll go to the storehouse or something and, and give some help there. Maybe I'll be in town and I'll, I'll help someone who's struggling or maybe out on the streets. But when it comes to my own street, if I get involved there, well, there's no escape. My neighbours are always going to be there. And so it actually might cost me something to get involved with them. And as my friend Chris Benfield likes to remind me, you know, this is a situation like many others where we find ourselves holding values in tension. And we do have to sit in this very real tension between, on the one hand, Jesus' command to love our neighbours and all, on the other hand, all the potential inconvenience that that might throw up for us. It's not wrong to have boundaries and space, but it's also good to question whether or not we've really got the right priorities going on all the time. And maybe if there's some kind of fear underlying that, you know, we have some friends who a few years ago made a very deliberate decision to do this, to intentionally spend more time getting to their neighbours and the people in their street. They invited them in, they were hanging out, they were doing drinks. And it was great, it was a brilliant thing to do. And, you know, there was fruit from it. And while we watched on and we were like, yeah, that's brilliant. Practically, it meant that we didn't actually get to see our friends as much as we perhaps would have liked. And we missed them. 
And it was a very real cost. But we felt it was a cost worth paying because it was, we felt it was something God was inviting them and us to do. For the sake of following this command to love our neighbours and to be around what he was doing with people in the communities around us. And I wonder what fears all of this throws up for you. You know, maybe in our heart of hearts, we're just scared of being with new people, afraid of how they'll be with us. Maybe we just feel very self-conscious about coming across as a weird Christian. Or maybe in lockdown, some of us are already concerned about, you know, our kids are getting too much screen time. We're feeling frazzled as as it is, and we're just wondering if we can possibly fit anything or anyone else into our lives right now. Those are all very real fears. And my encouragement is to trust God with our resources, with our time and energy, to bring our questions to him and let him answer them. But actually, even more importantly, to bring him our fears. It's not always just about letting go of them. Sometimes it's not that easy, but maybe we can ask him to help us process the fears and better understand them and work out why we're feeling them and what's actually going on. Remember this play on words that I mentioned before. It doesn't take a lot for scared to change to sacred. And like Joe said last week, the best way to move forward with this is to do what Mary was doing in the story last week, to spend time sitting at Jesus' feet. He can take our fear and he can show us what steps to take next. His love overcomes fear every time. Scared can become sacred. It happened for the woman in this story and it can happen for us in lockdown. And his love can help us overcome our deepest fears, even when it comes to reaching out beyond ourselves to our neighbours and our friends. And I said I wanted to flag up some resources that might help us in this. And so I just want to flag up these spiritual formation cards, which you can get from vineyard churches uh, and also these spiritual exercises. One is just some prayers that are very helpful, very simple sort of structure of prayer to help us just be with Jesus. The other ones are videos, which if you put them on, will just lead you through connecting with Jesus in different ways. And uh, if you don't know how to connect with Jesus in this time, if you're just feeling so stressed out with everything, then both of these resources should really help. And why don't we pray now? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you into each of our hearts. We welcome you into each of our homes. Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate our hearts now and show us where it is that we are operating out of a sense of fear? Lord, we want to be real about what's going on inside. But we also want to come to you. Please help us figure out ways to bring our fears to you. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with ourselves and with those around us. Deliver us from the need to pretend that everything's okay. Deliver us from the false belief that we just have to hold everything together. Give us the courage to ask for help and show us how to create space to come and be with you. For some of us, I just had this sense that um, scared can become sacred. I think that's a word from God for today. And some of us feel like we're just kind of so knotted up. You know, I'm clenching my fists here because while we may not be physically doing that, that's what it feels like. We kind of feel stressed and knotted because we're like, I just can't do this. I can't. I'm afraid. And maybe for some of us, what the Lord wants us us to do is just literally to open our hands, to allow him to take the fear 
and to lift it out of our hands. And so if you if, if that's you and if that resonates with you, then can I invite you just to literally to open up your hands, unclench your fists. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you minister deeply into people's hearts? And would you come and would you take away fear? In the name of Jesus.